1: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you
0: there. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Over the course of the last two decades, the opioid addiction crisis in the United States has claimed the lives of an estimated 500,000 people and it's wrecked many more lives too. There are a number of reasons why opioids took such a terrible hold in parts of that country, but it is generally accepted that the original source of the problem lay in the 1990s with the release of a new prescription drug, OxyContin, by a little-known company called Purdue Pharma. Purdue are in the news again this week as final bankruptcy proceedings are due to come to a close in the next few weeks, with many thousands of claims against it for the damage which its products has caused. But behind Purdue Pharma is a very wealthy family with a very famous name. In museums and art galleries and universities across the world, you will see the name Sackler proudly displayed at the entrance. The Sacklers are one of the most prominent philanthropic families in the world, And the Sacklers were also the owners of Purdue Pharma. And the Sacklers are the ones who made billions of profits from OxyContin as it spread like wildfire across America. The story of all of this and more is told by Patrick Radden Keefe in Empire of Pain, which for me is one of the best nonfiction books I've read in the last 12 months. And I am delighted he's joining us today. Hi, Patrick.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you, Hugh.
0: Maybe we could start at the beginning with the Sacklers, because it, it, one way to read this book is, is, is as a sort of blockbuster story of a family dynasty. They rose from very modest means. The story really begins with three brothers growing up in Brooklyn in the 1920s and 1930s.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's funny, you know, I, I set out deliberately uh, not to write an opioid crisis book, but really more to do a kind of multi-generational family history about this family. Um, And I grew up, you know, I grew up in Boston. I've lived in New York on and off for years. And so I was very familiar with this Sackler name because it becomes kind of, it's part of the sort of the landscape. You know, if you go to a museum, you just kind of ambiently, you're aware of this name everywhere. And um, I didn't know about the history and the history is really rich and fascinating. It really starts at the turn of the last century with three brothers, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond, who were born to immigrant parents who had settled in Brooklyn. They'd come from Eastern Europe. And uh, these three boys grow up against the backdrop of the Great Depression. And they're raised by their parents from a very early age to want to become physicians. Arthur Sackler, the oldest brother, later joked that by the age of four, he knew he would become a doctor um, because his parents had kind of indoctrinated him. With that idea, and so they kind of pursue their educations and and become uh, doctors, psychiatrists, all three of them, but not just doctors but also businessmen and This is the kind of significance of it is that the three brothers would end up really at the bleeding edge uh, of a kind of mid century American trend to infuse the practice of medicine with commerce you know with this with this profit motive, this desire to make money
0: so there's this for them, um, financially at least, hugely serendipitous moment and the particularly the years after the Second World War, into the 50s and into the 60s, where pharmaceuticals and medicine, there's great optimism about what they can do in terms of improving the quality of people's lives, but there are vast sums of money to be made. And I think that the thing that's really worth understanding about this story is that Arthur, in particular, understands how to make money. He's a marketing guy, essentially. He's a, an ad man, he's a madman. This is the time of, of that Mad Men takes place. But it's a very particular kind of business, isn't it? Because you're not really selling your product directly to the people who are going to take it, you need to sell it to the doctors who are then going to prescribe it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, so Arthur was this kind of, um, you know, Don Draper figure uh, of medical advertising in the 1940s and 50s. You had all these new pharmaceutical companies. This was really kind of kicked off after the development of um, penicillin in the Second World War. You then get this kind of burgeoning industry where you have all these pharma companies putting out new drugs. And they're trying to find ways to differentiate these products and to kind of make their mark. And what Arthur did was he really imported into the world of uh, drug advertising all of the kind of pizzazz and I would argue the trickery that you found in other areas of consumer advertising. So the types of tricks that people would use to sell a car or sell a bathing suit or sell cigarettes. Arthur was really just focused on drugs. And his big Um, one of his big innovations was to recognize that it's really not the consumer who you're trying to reach. I mean, it helps if the consumer is aware of the drug, but the person you really want to reach is the physician. And he recognized that the physician writes the prescriptions. So that's who you want to romance. And that the best way to make the pitch to a doctor is often to use another doctor. And so he would send out sales representatives, but also enlist doctors to kind of act as spokespeople for drugs, and they would make very exaggerated claims about all the many good things that the drug could do for you. And they tended to downplay, or not mention at all, uh, the potential of negative side effects.
0: So one of the great triumphs that he sort of oversees or mediates are the rollout of the first kind of wave of drugs like Librium and Valium to American families and individuals in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s.
1: Yeah, that's right. So he designs for the Swiss pharmaceutical company Roche the uh, advertising and marketing campaign, first for Librium and then for Valium, which were these two what were described as minor tranquilizers. And the idea was you had major tranquilizers, which were even products like Thorazine, which were used for people who were psychotic. But there's only so many psychotics out there. What if we came up with something which was like a kind of a, a light version of that, that would be useful for anybody with a bit of anxiety, anybody who's stressed out, um, you know, uh, people who just want to relax a little on the weekend. And what they ended up doing was creating these two drugs that became, I mean, first Librium became the biggest selling drug in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. And then it was overtaken by Valium, which was made by the same company and also marketed by Arthur Sackler. And for a long time, the two of them were in the top five for all the, all the drugs being sold in America. So this made Arthur Sackler very, very wealthy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm astonished by it because first of all, when I think of an advertising person, I just think that they're on a fee or a relatively small percentage. But the Sacklers become extraordinarily wealthy from these humble beginnings. The three brothers end up in a situation where they have all the trappings of the, the townhouses in Manhattan and the, the chateaus in France and the mansions in Mayfair in
1: London. They really are in the 1%. Oh, absolutely, and I think part of that is, um, you know, that they did all kinds of things. There was all this sort of entrepreneurial energy, and I would argue a lot of conflicts of interest. So, you know, Arthur Sackler is in pharmaceutical advertising. He then ends up buying and owning the pharmaceutical advertising company, but he's also got a stake in uh, his his main rival in pharmaceutical advertising—a sort of hidden stake. He buys a pharmaceutical company for his brothers. He starts a medical newspaper. Uh, which is distributed to doctors and runs on advertising from the very firms that he represents. So he's kind of got his fingers in many, many pies and conflicts of interest all over the place. One of the things he did with Librium and Valium was, and this was kind of a, a, a practice of his throughout his life, is he said to Roche, listen, rather than pay me a fixed fee, what I want you to do is kind of bet on me and allow me to bet on myself. So I basically want a share, I want a series of escalating bonuses, depending on how much you sell of the drug, so my compensation will be tied to your volume of sales, and there'll be no ceiling on it. And so he, he makes that deal, and then, you know, this, this precedes the first, the first, and then the second drug become, uh, respectively, the, the, uh, in their time, the biggest blockbuster on the planet. And so this really makes him very, very, very wealthy.
0: And there's another pattern here as well, which prefigures things that will happen later in the story of the Sacklers, where regulation is obviously, in theory at least, very important when it comes to allowing pharmaceuticals to be sold to the public. And there's a real cosiness between the regulatory authority and the pharmaceutical companies, and indeed the Sacklers.
1: Yeah, I mean, Arthur Sackler in particular, and I keep talking about him, I should say the first third of the book is devoted to Arthur. Um, who dies in 1987 but he he was this kind of great protean personality and and uh, I think had a lot of impact on his brothers and actually on the course of of, of modern medicine um, he had this view this kind of rosy view that there's really no such thing as a conflict of interest when it comes to medicine that we're all friends here and um, so a degree of coziness with regulators was was encouraged um, there's a story I tell early in the book about a gentleman who was a one, the top antibiotics official at the FDA, who it turns out Arthur Sackler was effectively bribing. What happened was that um, uh, <laughs> the guy ended up editing a couple of journals that Arthur Sackler ran, and the journals would get purchased in very, very large volumes, and the official got a percentage of the sales, and it turned out that Pfizer, for instance, the drug company, was purchasing hundreds of thousands of copies of just these useless journals. And this was a way of kind of laundering a bribe to this public official. So that becomes a big scandal, and that guy resigns in disgrace. And that's in the 1950s, and that, I'm afraid, prefigures some of the ways in which the whole regulatory apparatus uh, would subsequently be compromised with OxyContin.
0: And before we get to that, just to fill in the other... Missing part of the story, and there's a lot about it in here, is their extraordinary um, prominence in the world of philanthropy, which I think is something which is much bigger in the United States than it is on this side of the Atlantic. But they practice it on both sides of the Atlantic. There, there are a lot of significant museums and galleries and universities in the United Kingdom, in particular, who have benefited from the Sackler name and which currently have the Sackler name on it. I don't know how much longer they're go- they're going to have it. What was driving that? I mean, it seems to be almost the most extreme version of the desire to put your name and everything that, that, that I've seen. Is it, was it something particularly extreme at the Sacklers as opposed to other billionaire philanthropists?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing thing because you, there's a continuity here. It starts in the 1950s, and I was able to trace this history. Really, when the brothers first start making money, they start giving the money away, often to arts and sciences uh, types of causes. So universities, uh, medical facilities, but, but really in a big way to art museums and galleries, always with this stipulation that the name must go on the wall. Um, and they, they took a kind of hard-eyed view of this. Arthur Sackler's longtime attorney said, you know, if you want your name on it, that's not charity. That's a business deal. And I tried to figure this out. It's, there's a kind of mania with which they do it. Somebody described it as an edifice complex. And I think there's a bunch of different things going on. I mean, I think some of it is a bid for immortality. I think some of it was a sense that, you know, these three brothers had grown up against the backdrop of the Great Depression. Uh, They were Jewish. They were excluded often because they were Jewish from some aspects of high society in the U.S. The two younger brothers, Mortimer and Raymond, actually went to Scotland. They went to Glasgow for uh, medical school because there were Jewish quotas at American medical schools. So I think that there was a sense in which um, perhaps kind of putting the name out there, was a a way of saying, you won't exclude us. Look at this, you know, look at the kind of entree we can buy. Um, But there's this very powerful story that I discovered about the original patriarch, Isaac Sackler, the father of those three brothers. And in the Depression, Isaac loses everything. And he has this conversation with his sons, who were just boys at the time, where he, he kind of gathers them to him and he says, listen, i I won't be able to pay for your education. You're going to have to finance it yourself. I wish I had money to give you, but I've lost it all. Um, But then he says, but, you know, I have given you the most important thing that a father can give his children. I've given you a good name. And he says, you know, if you you lose a fortune, you can always make another one. But if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. And I've given you this name, the Sackler name. And that was a story that got repeated inside the family. And I do think there was a sense in which there's a kind of it's almost like ancestor worship, right? A kind of veneration of the father and a veneration of the name that happens, and that's why certainly today, if you go to London, I mean, if you go to the uh, to the this is universities in, in in Scotland, you go to you know go to Oxford, go to the the Tate Modern, go to the Serpentine National Portrait Gallery, the name is everywhere. And then as we
0: move on into the 1980s, there's a handover from one generation to the next generation, and all those kinds of challenges which powerful families face of, is the next generation going to live up to what's been bequeathed to it and build on it or just piss it all away, I suppose. And this is where the opportunity, the opportunity of of a
1: new drug raises its head. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that that dynamic because the, I think, stories about families are just inherently interesting. And this was part of what was appealing to me was, was um, you know, not just the kind of big pharma aspect of it, but the big... Quarrelsome, uh, wealthy family, and the way in which these different generations kind of distinguish themselves. So, you, yes, you get, um, you know, eventually Arthur Sackler dies in 87. Raymond and Mortimer are still ostensibly running the company Purdue, but there are these children from the second generation who come to the fore, particularly Richard Sackler, who's Raymond's son, um, and to some degree Kathy Sackler, who's Mortimer's daughter. And up to that point, Purdue, the family drug company, had it had sold fairly unglamorous products. A lot of kind of over the counter staples. They, you know, they had a, um, a disinfectant solution, an earwax wax remover, uh, a laxative that did very well. And and these were all kind of um, you know somewhat humdrum products, very profitable uh, but not very sexy. And in the seventies and eighties. Uh, in part with the instigation of that younger generation, they start really doing R&D and trying to develop new products. And, and first they develop a morphine painkiller uh, called MS-Contin, which is used for the treatment of cancer pain. And um, it was basically just morphine, but in, a, in pill form. And the real innovation was the, the contin part, which is this seal around the pill, which can slowly and continuously releases the drug into your bloodstream. And so in that way it brought great relief to patients. And that was a, a, a tremendous success for the company.
0: So you have this MS content, and as you say, it's it's being used for people who are in extreme pain and in, in very serious health circumstances. And I think, you know, people if people have had very serious illnesses or they've they've had family members who've had terminal illnesses, they'll know there is a point at which opioids are are, are seen as the best option because of the extreme circumstances they're in, but they're not seen as the best option for what you might call domestic use because of the, the huge dangers. And you refer in the book to the fact that heroin was in fact invented by German scientists supposedly as a safe opioid in the early 20th century. And we know how that all worked out. So what I really wonder is that jump from MS-Contin to OxyContin, why did a red light not flash on somewhere or a flag get raised that that those dangers were still there?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the, the really key moment. And um, it's funny, right? Because the dangers of opioids, you know, uh, humans have known about this for thousands of years, right? The opioid just means that it derives from the opium poppy. Uh, and people have known forever that there's this paradox with these products, which is that on the one hand, they can deliver amazing relief from pain. On the other hand, they can be very addictive. And I think there was a hubris there. I mean, I think there was greed, obviously, but I also think there was a hubris there on the part of the Sacklers and the people who worked for them, a sense that, you know, it could be true that, that throughout all of medical history, people have kind of wrestled with this paradox, but we've cracked it. And their, their answer was, they said, you know, because we have that cotton uh, coating that slowly releases the, the drug into the system... That basically overcomes the any danger of, of addiction because you won't get the high highs and the low lows. It's a kind of continuous release of the drug. Um, this was wishful thinking. I mean, there, there was no scientific basis for thinking this. Uh, what's really extraordinary is they persuaded the FDA to effectively sign off on this claim. But I, I do believe, I, I should say, in fairness to the Sacklers and, and Purdue, I don't think it's a situation where they where they all got together and said let's let's orchestrate a big lie. I think the first lie they told was to themselves. You know, I think there there was a kind of wishful thinking there and I think they then um they then sort of foisted this idea on on an on an unwitting medical establishment.
0: Wasn't there also a, a kind of social or political or perhaps medical movement at the time a suggestion that that the medical establishment didn't deal properly with pain and with chronic pain and that physicians needed to start taking it more seriously and finding treatments for it, which, which they hadn't done in the past. Basically, that the medical establishment didn't know how to deal with pain.
1: That's absolutely right. And I should say, as, as, a, as a kind of purely descriptive matter, I don't know that that was wrong. I mean, it, it, you know, there, there was a sense that, that, that pain was being undertreated. Um, but what happened was that a lot of people who were kind of evangelists for this notion also argued that part of the problem was there was an irrational hysteria about the danger of opioids. They should be much more widely prescribed. People talked about what they described as opiophobia. Um, and as is often the case in, in modern medicine, I would say particularly, I'm afraid, modern American medicine, um, the thing that's tricky when you parse it out is it's the money is everywhere, right? So you had physicians who were making that case, but often those physicians were getting funding from the pharma companies, companies like Purdue. And you had studies, but often those studies were underwritten by the pharma companies. Um, And so there's this huge profit motive, obviously, uh, to sell these drugs. And, And I think that polluted any objective assessment of how true it really was that pain was undertreated or that opioids should be more widely prescribed.
0: Because claims end up being made, don't they, when OxyContin is is approved by the FDA and it's rolled out with supporting documentation for doctors, that it's not addictive, or at least it's not addictive for the vast, vast majority of people. And those claims are not based on any any real data.
1: No, they're totally bogus. And 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 this is this is where in some ways the ghost of Arthur Sackler comes back, is that you know Arthur Sackler's method was you sort of pick your talking points, you make them look as as um, sort of formal and medical as you can, and then you just, you know, kind of blanket the zone. You you, you just sort of send out as, as many sales reps as you can to make the case. And so what Purdue did was they sent out hundreds and hundreds of sales representatives to meet with thousands and thousands of doctors, nurses, pharmacists all across the country, armed with this literature, which we now know to be bogus. And what they would say again and again and again was, if you are a pain patient and you take the drug in a doctor's care, it's not addictive. What they would say again and again is it's addictive less than 1% of the time, less than 1% of the time. That was kind of a, um, you know, it was like a catechism. They sort of uh, just repeated this daily in in their various meetings. And and the crazy thing is the doctors bought it. So what happens when OxyContin hits the shelves of the pharmacies? Well, first it becomes a, a huge success. And the whole premise of the marketing campaign was, you know, it's funny, I mentioned earlier with Arthur Sackler and the idea of um, the major tranquilizers and the minor tranquilizers. The great success of Valium, right, was uh, most people aren't psychotic, but, you know, everybody could use a bit of a a stress relief at the end of the day. And so if you're marketing a drug, much better to find a drug that that fits that latter category because that's a huge market. That's almost anyone. MS-Contin was this successful drug for cancer pain. But there were these conversations, and I have the emails. I mean, the, you, know, you can see these high-level conversations that happen at the company in which they say, ah, oh, the problem is there's only so many people with cancer pain. What if we could market this for moderate pain, for chronic pain, for back pain, for sports injuries? Um, that's a huge market. We want to reach those people. So the whole premise was that OxyContin wouldn't be like the nuclear solution that sits on the top shelf and you reach for it only when other remedies have failed. It would be, their, their phrase was, it's the one to start with and to stay with. And almost immediately, this proved hugely successful, more successful than the Sacklers had dreamed it could be. Um, and if you think about it, it makes sense. If you're a physician, I mean, I've talked to so many doctors who say, no, you treat people, they come to you in pain. You want to help them. You're desperate to help them. And then a pharmaceutical company comes along and says, "Look, we have this FDA approved product it's, it's it's a wonder drug. It's a miracle." And so doctors were willing to use it. And so the the drug becomes enormously successful within just a few years. It's a billion dollar drug. And this is in the
0: in the in the mid to late 1990s, but pretty quickly some doctors at least start smelling a rat, don't they?
1: They do. Because in fact, uh, you know, the the whole suggestion that there are no side effects is is entirely wrong. The drug is abused almost immediately. People start getting addicted almost immediately. uh, And in short order, people start dying and overdosing on the drug. Um, It's really doctors who notice this first. And uh, I think word pretty quickly filters back to the company that things are going wrong.
0: And this is, I think, one of the, the key points in your book. With because your book is it, it, it's a deeply moral book. It's really at its heart is this moral question of of responsibility. And as you tell it, the Sacklers, the owners of Purdue Pharma, the board on which the Sacklers had a majority, this information was coming back to them within two or three years
1: or less. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's there's all kinds of. I should say that the family and the company have always told this story, which is that they started selling the drug in 1996. And for four blissful years, they had no notion at all that there was anything seriously wrong. And it's only in early 2000 that they start getting the sense that there are real problems. Um, I found a a very extensive paper trail to suggest otherwise, that the company knew. And if you think about it, I mentioned earlier those sales representatives who are fanning out across the country. That's like an early warning system, right? I mean, those are the people who are out there talking to doctors that, you know, they're in the communities So, of course, they would get the kind of early indications. There's a guy I write about in the book, a guy named Stephen May, who was a sales rep for Purdue and loved the job and went out there and sold OxyContin and really believed in it. And one day, and I think it was 99, he goes to see a doctor who was one of his top prescribers. In the company, they refer to these people as whales, which I thought was very telling. It's what, you know, in Vegas, they call the big gamblers. So a big prescriber, a doctor, that's something, you know, if you're a sales rep, you like a person like that. And he goes to visit her and she was, she was upset that day. And he asked why. And she said that a, she'd had a, um, a young relative who'd just died from an overdose of OxyContin, the very drug that he's promoting. So what's
0: happening here? People are getting the pills from their doctors or perhaps buying them off somebody who got them from the doctors and they're, what, crunching them up and snorting them or they're injecting them. They're basically using them as a, as a direct substitute for illegal opiates.
1: Well, yes, though there's a, there's a range of things that are happening. so So what, what you just described absolutely is happening. And people pretty quickly realize that that whole notion of the content seal with the controlled release over 12 hours, you can override that just by by crushing the pills or chewing on them, even, and then you get the full, really big dose of of uh, the opioid oxycodone right away. So people are abusing the pills and The argument that the Sacklers and Purdue start making when they learn about this is that um, that's really not a problem of the pills. That's a problem of the people who are abusing them, that it is a substitute, that these are people who would be abusing other drugs under different circumstances. I think that the tricky part of that is that's true, but it's also true that there are many people who become addicted to the drug when they take it just as the doctor ordered. They had a pain situation, they had surgery or what have you, they're prescribed OxyContin, uh, and they find that they're in the grip of the drug. It's not working as long or as well as they think it should be. They start going into withdrawal before it's time to take the next dose. uh, And one thing leads to another, and they're hopelessly addicted. So there's a kind of taxonomy that the company created and the Sacklers have, have long held to, which is that there's two kinds of people. There's legitimate pain patients who are prescribed the drug and they take it as directed and they never get addicted. And then there's kind of drug abusers of low moral character who, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, opportunistically abuse the drug. And I, I think that those categories have, have never been um, as discreet as the family and the company would, would lead you to believe. I mean, when we hear about the opioid crisis in
0: the United States, here we hear it in the context. We have heard it in the context of things like some of the forces driving uh, the election of Donald Trump. You know, social issues in uh, majority white states in the in the in the Midwest, a kind of a symptom of industrial decline and depression in in certain in certain societies. Um, does that overgeneralize? Where it, where it affected? I noticed. I think there was a reference in your book to the fact that there is a there is a certain kind of racialization. Of the way this thing played through, and that actually, ironically, black people were not as adversely affected by the first wave of this because physicians were reluctant to give these drugs to black people in the first place, and not because they, uh, not because they, they necessarily cared for their health.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was um, uh, well. So there's a few, there's a few different things going on. I mean, the the um, look, the opioid crisis is is a, an enormously complex public health crisis that has extended over a quarter of a century and killed half a million people. Um, So I I would never want to be so reductive as to suggest that there's any one explanation uh, or any one party that you could point a finger to. I think there are many, many different factors. There's an argument here that you often hear about what they call deaths of despair, um, in which you, yes, it's precisely the idea that you have a kind of uh, dislocated, disenfranchised, often kind of white... Working class community in different parts of the country that has been sort of left behind by uh, industry, and that there's a great deal of despair, and so you get not just opioid abuse, but suicide and various other um, uh, ways of measuring that decline. And I, I think that there's there's some value to that explanation, but I also think that the the uh, prescribing of opioids and specifically of OxyContin actually goes quite a long way in explaining uh, how we got here in the first instance, that is sort of how the whole thing started. It's kind of the origin story. The, the crisis has, has evolved since then, right? Today, people are taking heroin, they're taking fentanyl, it's not so much prescription drugs, but the on-ramp for many people was prescription drugs. And, and to your point about race, yes, uh, there's this kind of strange sense in which a disinclination to aggressively treat pain uh, in black patients, By physicians. A kind of systemic racism may have actually sheltered the black community from from feeling the worst brunt of the crisis.
0: And it contrasts, I I would suggest, to some extent with the approach to the so-called war on drugs when it applied to inner cities of the United States in the 70s and the 80s and the crack cocaine epidemic and various other kinds of things that affected African-Americans more.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's such an important point. You know, it's interesting. One aspect of the opioid crisis that has been really fascinating is we we talk today about victims of the opioid crisis. Um, and there is, I think, a more kind of, look, there's, there's still a great deal of stigma associated with drug addiction in this country, but I do think that there's been a much more humane and compassionate approach taken uh, to those who, who are in the throes of addiction, um, which is a marked contrast from, for instance, the crack epidemic in the 1980s, there's another side of this too, which is that I, I think that these kind of racial disparities, and this is fairly typical, I'm afraid, of, of the way things play out in the United States, but these racial disparities are present even today when you look at the way we tackle the opioid crisis. So, I mean, I could give you, there's a, there's a fact pattern which you see again and again, which is a black or brown dealer sells uh, heroin or fentanyl to a, a white user. The white user shares it with a friend. The friend overdoses and dies. It is often the dealer who will get prosecuted. And, you know, in some cases sent away for long sentences, 15, 20 years in prison for having sold that dose that killed someone. But there's the sense that the user... Uh, you know, is is often spared the, the worst of that. So, I mean, to me, again, that is a, there's exceptions. Obviously, it's not always people of one color or another, but broadly speaking, that to me seems to be another fairly telling instance in which there are racial disparities in how we treat these kinds of social problems.
0: So back to the dealers in this instance, which is the the Sackler family. Uh, and and what we should say, by the way, that the Sacklers, despite their huge prominence in museums and galleries around the world, their association with purdue pharmacy was was almost invisible to most people for for a very very long time up until really on the last the last six or seven years. But they finally are forced to acknowledge that because they're starting to get legal suits against them and stuff, and then they bring in the entire power that they have as a as very wealthy individuals and a very wealthy corporation that's uh Taking in huge profits every year to really to kind of shut down those court cases to do to follow the kind of playbook perhaps that we saw with big tobacco ten or twenty years before that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and in some cases with the same, with the same law firms advising them. I mean, one of the one of the main uh, uh, firms that has worked with the Sackler family for years is an old big tobacco firm. Uh, the playbook is very similar to big tobacco. I mean, I think the approach by the Sacklers and Purdue for years was we want to shut these cases down. We'll settle where we have to. We always want to seal the records. What they didn't want was any kind of open airing of these issues, any opening of the books. And so they were willing to pay money to make cases go away, but there was always uh, a a couple of stipulations. One was we'll never admit any wrongdoing. And the other was we seal the records, destroy the records. What we don't want is the public uh, or the press or authorities or historians pouring over our books, pouring over uh, material that's come out in discovery. Fortunately for me, and I, and I think fortunately for all of us, uh, that was a posture they could only maintain for so long. And so the Sacklers even today adamantly maintain that they're uh, entirely blameless. I mean, I you know, there's some of their, a lot of their Private communications have come out in Discovery. I had some of it leaked to me. And when they talk privately about the opioid crisis, really the impression that you get is that the real victims of the opioid crisis are actually the Sackler family in their minds, you know, in terms of um, what an imposition this has been for them. But there's such a huge volume, tens of thousands of pages of documents that have come out, that it's now possible, I think, to to tell the story, you know, their denials notwithstanding, uh, in in a pretty comprehensive way.
0: And meanwhile, while all this is going on, and there are still billions in profits being being raked in over the years, the first decade of, of, of this century, the sacklers are kind of hoovering money out of the company. They're taking out hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars all the time. I mean, I mentioned at the top of the podcast here that Purdue Pharma is facing bankruptcy and there are claims on it from from from
1: many people, but the money's all gone, or an awful lot of it's gone, isn't it? Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, you know, OxyContin has generated thirty five billion dollars in revenue, and I, I would think, uh, you know, to 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 the casual listener uh, of, of this podcast, you know, it, it might raise the question: Well, how how does a company declare bankruptcy when they've made thirty five billion dollars in revenue on this drug? And the answer is that uh, you're quite right. Starting in two thousand and seven, the family has been quietly siphoning money out and. They claim that this was just business as usual. Many others, including state prosecutors, have claimed they knew that someday the music would stop. They knew that someday uh, there would be court cases um, and and somebody would have to pay the piper. And so there was this long period of time in which they're just quietly moving the money out of the company into their private accounts and often offshore and into trusts, places where it would be hard to get. It's been documented that they've taken more than $10 billion out of the company. And so eventually what happens is that a couple of years ago, you have thousands of lawsuits at this point around Purdue over its role in the opioid crisis. It had at that point, the company had pled guilty to criminal charges once. It has subsequently pled guilty to new criminal charges in 2020. Um, And the family effectively says, you know, it's, it's such a shame about all these lawsuits. The company just doesn't have the money. To handle them all, so we're going to kick it into bankruptcy. It's pretty morally revolting, really, isn't it? I mean, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, y- you end up in a scenario in which uh, there is a bankruptcy plan that you know is is getting hashed out right now and will be confirmed, um, you know, in in the coming weeks, in which the the company will cease to exist. Basically, um, the family. they've they've kept their money. They have said, we will put up $4.5 billion to help remediate the opioid crisis. We'll admit no wrongdoing. And they will be immunized from any future lawsuits by this bankruptcy judge. So this is basically, you know, all the kinds of various claimants who could and might want to bring cases against the Sacklers will never be allowed to actually test these claims. And you might be thinking $4.5 billion, that's, that's a great deal of money. So first of all, it all depends on how you look at it, right? I mean, it is, in absolute terms, a great deal of money. But uh, consider that the cost of the opioid crisis is in the trillions of dollars. I mean, it's you know it's a drop in the bucket in terms of the need. And for the Sacklers themselves, they have a fortune that's estimated today to be about $11 billion. And they're proposing to pay out this $4.5 billion over nine years. So if you look at Just the amount of money, the return on investment you get on an $11 billion fortune every year, the chances are they won't ever have to touch their principal. They can practically pay it off with interest. And when they're done paying off the $4.5 billion over nine years, the Sacklers will be richer than they are today.
0: The other thing that's been happening, I doubt it's much consolation to people who've lost family members, but is that this huge prominence that they have in the world of culture, in particular, Uh, All these wings of galleries and museums. um, There's increasing pressure to take those names off.
1: Yes, Uh, and and I think that that will be really the the only form of um, genuine comeuppance that the family will contend with is that you've started to see institutions, some of them quite prominent. I mean, the uh, Tufts University in in the states took the name down. NYU, New York University, took the name down. The Louvre in Paris took the name down. Um, uh, you're seeing it at the universities in, in uh, Scotland that they have contributed to. And my sense is that the more of this story that comes out, the harder it gets for these institutions, because I do think that there's a bit of soul searching that's going on, particularly in the art world. and. You know, you mentioned that for years this didn't seem to catch up with them, that it was really only in quite recent years that people put together that the Sackler family that we know uh, from all these galleries is also the family that helped drive uh, this drug that, that, that sparked the opioid crisis. Um, I think a lot of institutions are now wondering whether there was a degree of reputation laundering that happened in their willingness to take the money and kind of um, continue to buffer the name even as you know, there was evidence of Purdue Pharma's wrongdoing, and it was really only in recent years that that a lot of these places started doing some soul searching and saying, uh, "Perhaps this isn't the best idea." Is there not some sense in which, indirectly, we have, you know, we we have some degree of complicity? Because that world of
0: the arts and and education is generally tends towards the more kind of socially progressive end of things. And indeed, you have an interesting anecdote about one member of the third generation of the family who's quite a well-known independent filmmaker, uh, who's uh, made a film, I think, about incarceration in American prisons. And there was an attempt to sort of call her to account to some extent, to, to ask how did the kind of positions that she put forward as an artist reconcile with the fact that her lifestyle was essentially subsidised by this this form of oppression, I suppose you could put it in, in another way. And there was no answer to that. And that's sort of a representative example, isn't it, of how the family's posture has been since all this blew up. They don't talk. They wouldn't talk to you. They haven't really talked to anybody, have they? They've Except when they've been hauled up and asked to account for themselves in a legal form, or I think once before the House of Representatives as well.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting, you know, that example you gave of Madeline Sackler, the third generation Sackler who's a filmmaker. She is she's I think quite typical of the third generation in the sense that they're not on the board of the company. They didn't work for the company. And so it raises an interesting moral question, and I think a question about about which reasonable people could differ, you know. I mean, I my my wife uh as I was working on the book, she and I would would go back and forth about this whether I was too hard on Madeline. So the question becomes um You know, she's a filmmaker. She's out there making films, talking about mass incarceration. Um, And she's very, very wealthy because of the sale of OxyContin. And her position is, I didn't work at the company, wasn't on the company's board. I have nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with me. And my position is, if you're very, very wealthy because there's a trust somewhere that's full of money that came from the sale of OxyContin, then you do have something to do with it. Uh, whether you were actually in the driver's seat at the company or not, if you were a beneficiary, then you do have something to do with it. In her case, it was particularly striking to me because mass incarceration as an issue in the United States is quite intimately tied to the war on drugs and thus the opioid crisis. So the notion that you would kind of weigh in in a morally serious, uh, astute way about mass incarceration and not divulge your own connection to the story um, struck me as, as a bit nuts. And in fact, I quote Jeffrey Wright, the actor who was the star of one of her films, uh, saying much the same thing, that he thought that she should, ha- she should account for this. She should have something to say. But it's quite typical of the Sacklers that her position is, I don't owe anybody an answer. You know, it's not, it's not reasonable for you to ask me. I shouldn't need to ask, answer these questions.
0: What fascinates me about that is that, you know, there's quite a lot of Sacklers now that not one of them broke ranks. Not one of them said, I, you know, I think there's something morally wrong here. That's because there must be what, 40, 50, 60 of them? You would think that one would one would crack.
1: Yes. I you know, it's funny, this was my my working theory as a journalist for years of working on this, is I thought there must be some apostate. There must be someone who is younger and um, you know, maybe sees the world a bit differently. And part of what was so striking about this family is the they, they're very different. And there's all kinds of quarrels and fights and, and rivalries and grudges that you would see in any other uh, big family and perhaps, perhaps particularly big wealthy family. Um, but on this, there's a kind of uniformity. They're in lockstep. Um, and and I, I think this is true not just publicly, but I, you know, I obtained in, in my reporting because it, it was produced in, in, a, in a court proceeding a private family WhatsApp for the heirs of Mortimer Sackler. So it's, you know, you, know, you may have a WhatsApp chat with members of your family. And, and this was a log of this private Sackler WhatsApp that went back a couple of years in which they're talking about all these issues. Um, it was strange for me because, I mean, they, at a certain point, they're kind of reacting to this article that I wrote in The New Yorker. And, it's, and you can kind of see, you pass through the looking glass and you see the way they, they're, they're discussing how to deal with this on the other side. What was so striking to me is that in this private family conversation that stretches over years, there's not one person who says, gee, maybe we did do something wrong. Maybe we, sh- you know, maybe we should ask some questions about the conduct of our company. Instead, uniformly across the board, there's a sense that this is a PR problem. Uh, uh, we need to handle it as a PR problem, but we did nothing wrong.
0: This is a terrible story, but it's a great gift to a writer, isn't it? Because if it had been a faceless corporation with a bunch of executives who just stepped down and disappeared and people just covered their asses left, right and centre, it wouldn't kind of have the the narrative heft, the sense of, you know, a, a dynasty, a family dynasty, the a story that Spans nearly a century. All those kind of things that make it easier, really, to 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 bring up these really quite profound questions about morality and the way that the pharmaceutical industry works and the way that American society as a whole works. I suppose.
1: Well, I yes, I mean, I it, it's it's <laughs> I, I don't want to sound um, glib in light of the severity of of the subject and the stakes at hand, but it's a hell of a story, and I and I I think I knew that. Uh, going in, there's a great deal of drama. These are fascinating personalities. I mean, uh, you know, fundamentally as a writer, that's what, that's what intrigues me most is kind of questions about the decisions people make and then the stories they tell themselves about the decisions they make and the, and the downstream consequences of those decisions. And so um, the to me, as a, as a storyteller and as somebody who's interested in these kinds of moral questions um, it was a great opportunity. It was a, you know, just a fascinating saga to explore.
0: Do you think the story is essentially over or just about to be over with these, these settlements are going to be negotiated in some form or another over the next, over the next month or two, aren't they? Does that really put a, put a cap on this?
1: Yes and no. I mean, I, I think in terms of the Sacklers, it does. I think that this is, this is kind of the end of it for them. I think they're going to get out. I think they basically will kind of ride off into the sunset with a, with a get out of jail, you know, not, not free, but get out of jail for $4.5 billion card. Um, there will be other cases against other opioid makers. Uh, the, the, certainly the opioid crisis continues to endure. It was the worst year yet. Uh, this past year in terms of overdoses. Uh, Unfortunately, the COVID pandemic only compounded things. There's an interesting question with the Sacklers, which is, you know, I mentioned the name is going to be coming down and has been coming down. And I think we'll see more of that. There's one other feature of this, which is they're not acknowledging any wrongdoing in the settlement, but they have been forced to give up all their documents. And there's an archive that's going to be created with tens of millions of pages of documents, loads and loads of Internal emails and and uh, previously confidential documents, um, and that's a fascinating idea that there will be this archive. So I, I you know, I, I couldn't tell you for sure. I'd, I'd like to think I'd written the definitive version of this story, but the truth is, there's millions and millions of pages of things that I haven't seen. Right. So um, it could be that there are great secrets lurking uh, in that um, in that compendium of previously. Uh, Private documents that come out, and and I hope that others after me will will make their way through and and um, kind of pull the most interesting stuff and and tell us more.
0: I suppose all stories are, are open ended. Before before you go, actually speaking of that, can I ask you about uh, a lot of our listeners will will have read "Say Nothing," which was your your previous book um, about the killing of Gene McConville, and uh, hugely successful and another absolutely fantastic piece of writing. When a book like that goes out into the world, do further things come to light? Have further things in relation to that come to light? I know you did a podcast with my my uh, colleague Simon Carswell in the Irish Times about a year and a half ago about it. And even then, at that point, there were there were one, of, one or two things about uh, redacted documents that Ed Maloney contested. But a year and a half on, uh, has anything of significance happened? I've seen a bit of a backlash from people who described the book as a hatchet job and Gerry Adams, which I, I don't think is correct myself. But has anything else come out of the woodwork? Worth noting
1: yeah I mean the the claims about it being a hatched of cherry atoms that that I would not I would not call an unexpected uh, consequence of publication that would be more an expected one um the no I mean I listen it's been um in terms of sort of details associated with the story itself no I, I, as is very often the case in these types of situations you know you spend years working on a project, but the world doesn't know you're working on it, and then you put it out there. And so, you know, th- there were some particular stories I tried to track down, people I tried to track down, and um, folks have come out of the woodwork since the book came out, people who I wish I had known and, and known to contact when I was working on it, but nothing that would change the central narrative in a dramatic way. Look, for, for me, the most surprising thing, to be honest with you, is that the book was was read um, and embraced as widely as it was, I, I, particularly in Irish America, which I... I had thought would be indifferent to the book, if not made somewhat uncomfortable by it, because it's, you know, it tends to take issue with some of the types of myths that, uh, you know, people like me, Patrick Keefe from from Boston uh, grew up with. Um, But in some ways, I think enough time has passed since The Troubles that um, it's a moment in which there are a lot of people who are kind of willing to look back and, and reappraise some of the things that happened in the past. Um, and so that's been a um, a huge surprise for me, but but a welcome one. Patrick Radden new book is called
0: Empire of Pain and it's really terrific. I highly recommend it. It's published by Picador. Thanks to Patrick for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. We'll be back very soon, but do remember that you can mail us with any thoughts or questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks for listening.